You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I am talking to Lauren Patterson, but don't worry, I am not staying in this incredibly loud and echoey space during the interview. Apologies, I'm backstage at a show uh, and I'm recording this on the hop because uh, I excitingly went to Berlin last weekend and have also been working. In fact, Berlin has nothing to do with it. I realise now the reason I'm on the hop is I set aside three days this week uh, where instead of doing regular admin, I embarked upon a very exciting project that you will know about if you saw me accidentally spoiler the the secret of it on LinkedIn. Um, And if not, then it won't be long before I uh, start talking about it on social media and then regretting it. Anyway, that's some uh, background noise there. Let's crack on with this very interesting and insightful interview with Lauren Patterson, who you will know uh, was nominated for The Newcomer many years ago at Edinburgh. Not many years ago, a a handful of years ago. um, And was nominated this year for Best Show for her show It Is What It Is, which you can catch on tour all over the country right now uh, throughout October and November and also she will be at the Soho Theatre from the 7th to the 10th of December so go to SohoTheatre.com to find out about that. We're going to be talking about the content of her show. She was one of the very first people to proudly during the pandemic announce that she was moving back home and getting a day job and uh, she committed to that. That's part of what the show is about. We're also going to talk about class structures in comedy, about whether it's worth uh, moving to London. Lauren uh, is from the northeast, and we are going to talk about some of the interlocking elements uh, of those in the context of her career, her writing and so on. If you're in the Insiders Club, you can get 22 minutes of extras from this episode, including Lauren talking about eye contact and why it's such a big deal for her and lots of other interesting stuff besides. So go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you are not yet supporting the podcast with a minimum donation of £2 a month or however much you see fit. That's enough from me. Let's get on with the interview. This is Lauren Patterson. Hello. Thanks for Hello. coming on the show. Where, uh, congratulations. We should start with that. Thank you. Uh, on your storming Edinburgh Fringe run. Thank you very much. I was incredibly surprised. Genuinely. <laughs> people keep saying, mm, you must have known. And I was like, genuinely, nah. Because my rule, I don't know how you do it, but I say, don't tell me when press are in. Don't tell me when industry yeah. are in. Don't tell me when the panel's in, because why would I want to know that? Yeah. I want to perform every show for the audience, really. Obviously, you want to impress the other people as well, but I should be playing my show for the audience. So the second I start panicking that, oh, someone from The Guardian's in, or oh, someone from the panel's in, that crowd's getting a different show, and they're yeah. not getting the best version of me. So I just never asked. I didn't even look up who was on the panel, because obviously the longer you do comedy, the more people you will recognise. I thought, I'm not even going to look up who's on the panel, because otherwise I'll be like, oh, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so. I didn't even know they were still coming. I did notice my agent 
came quite a few times in quick succession and I was like wow because I've not been with her for very long I thought Lee is so supportive how many yeah. times has she been to see my show and then when I got the nomination I was like oh that she obviously must have known yes. lots of the panel was starting to come in so she was coming in doing our very best to keep us calm but not realizing that I was completely oblivious and was like yeah. this is going nice isn't it <laughs> <laughs> and did it feel um, did it feel, you said you had no idea, did it feel going into this festival, did it feel different? I mean, obviously it felt different. The circumstances are different because yeah. there'd been this huge gap. And you, I believe, were in a situation where you had, had you done work in progress in 2019? So I did 2018 and I thought, you know what, I am burnt out, I'm tired, okay. I'm exhausted, I, I can't afford to save from September the 1st to July the 30th for the Fringe again, so I'm going to take 2019 off and come back in 2020 with yeah, a bang. Gotcha. So I'd sort of started previewing 2020 show, like January 2020, like I had a show I was working up to take, yeah. that went in the bin, that went in the bin, and then just started again for for this year. Because obviously the the... the, the... The subject of your show is about, um, it's called It Is What It Is, yeah. and I've heard it. Thank you for sending me the uh, the audio of it. I didn't get didn't get to see it when I was up there. I think we clashed. Were you I doing the we lunchtime? Did, yes. Oh man, I love that lunchtime spot. So great. I you... never want to perform in the evening again. Yeah, I totally love it. <laughs> yeah, well, this I think I wonder if you and I love it for the same reason, which is mm-hmm. that we are both anxiety sufferers, yeah. and when you get it done, you're Out done. The day exactly. is your own. You oh come back God. to your real self. Yeah, I was getting up at about ten getting ready leaving the flat like sort of half 11 I was at the monkey barrel for 12 did the show half 12 done for half one and I thought I now I'm not stewing all day being like oh I've got a show oh I've only sold this many tickets oh it's a weekend is it going to be rowdy is it going to be live it was done for my mental health has never been better than during the fringe this year. (laughs) Well let's talk about that because I think that's something that you talk about on stage it's something I know of you um from your was I we were on a podcast together yes, like early yeah. doors in the in the was that no because we went to the offices so it must have been it pre-pandemic was the very first one we recorded yeah 2018 yeah, right. I think it was yes with is it Aaron then. technically Aaron, wrong Aaron, on yes. Twitter Aaron yes Lovely very Aaron. um so I know that you're a kind of champion of mental health charities and and things like that as well and I want to talk to you about uh anxiety and how it relates to your uh, performance. Am I coming in too early with this? Because I think we should set we should set you up as a brilliant comic first. I always think that I want to go straight into tell me about all the vulnerabilities. But for people in the audience who don't know you, let's just do a quick uh, rundown of lovely, like where you are. You were uh, you did the Chortle student thing? Did you yes, did you place so in I... that? I just I just I watched five minutes of it oh, um, about an hour ago because oh, it's so wow. much fun watching people's the gigs. People often wish we'd rather forget little little babies. So I basically. Every competition final, I've done it. So like um, Leicester Square, the Natties. um, So you think you're funny, I didn't get to the final because I very stupidly did the Heat as my very first gig. Which, ah, nice. One of them. Oh, the uh, the naivety and confidence of an 18-year-old. Um, but I did get the to like the, the heats up in Edinburgh. Um, which are BBC Comedy Award. I got the final of that. Okay. Um, after several attempts, but I was like, we, "You keep going." Um, Funny Women. I got the final, but the only one I ever actually placed in was Funny Women. I uh, was one of the runner-ups. Okay. Um, I don't think I actually placed in. Oh no, no, I don't think I did because I did English Comedian of the Year as well. Um, got the final of that, but I think Funny Women might have been the only one I actually 
I was always the uh, the bridesmaid and never yes. the... <laughs> now, I think most people from the outside would go, that's amazing, You're like you managed to make it to the finalist. Knowing comedians as we do, probably you're thinking, oh, for Christ's sake, why can't I ever place in one well, of these? Or why weirdly, can't I win one of them? My very last sort of competition final I did, I think, was the Natties, and that was January 2017. And obviously okay. I'd done all the competition finals, and I was coming up to five years in comedy, which to me is when you should probably stop doing the new app competitions. Like Most of them, the rule is five years, but we both know there's plenty of people who will bend that. Sure. <laughs> but I thought, no, no, I've been gigging about five years. How am I going to be sort of taken seriously and progress if I'm still doing like new act competitions and I, I need to move beyond it? So I, I had kind of all my hopes. I was like, oh, please, it would be lovely if I could place in it. And I didn't. I was really disheartened. Um, in fact, maybe it was, I can't remember if it was the Natties or Leicester Square. It was one of them. Um, might have been Leicester Square, January 2017. But then that August was when I got Best Newcomer mm-hmm. um, or got the Best Newcomer nomination. And it put a lot of things in perspective for us because I thought six months ago I was stressing about placing in a new act competition when really I should have been focusing on, okay, if I want to progress as an act, stop worrying about competitions full stop. Stop yeah. worrying and find your voice and find your feet and that's obviously when I realised I was much better at writing an hour than I am at doing <laughs> 10 yes. minutes. Um, yeah, right. And it really changed my perspective. I was like, oh, I've put all this pressure on new act competitions where you're judged on five, seven minutes of your material. And obviously it's good to have a good five, seven minutes. And clearly I did or I wouldn't have got to the finals. But I remember beating myself up about not placing in this new act competition and then six months later I get in the nomination and I was like really what matters more and it's this because this is what's going to move you forward as an act and mm-hmm. get your get your foot in the door hopefully <laughs> yes yeah so I so and and in the meantime obviously you're you became a full-time pro and were yes. like I think of you as one of those I think of you as a kind of coal face comedian in yes. the sense that there are those of us who are just like you just gig you just gig 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 exactly. there are some people who ex- seem to exist more in the festival fringe world yeah. and other people who are like get out there it's Tuesday I've got to be gigging absolutely yeah like I cut my teeth on the circuit and I think that what made me the comic that I am because I, I have to, I have to, sorry to interrupt I have to say saying that you cut your teeth on the circuit is a much less class infected in, inflected way yeah. than me saying a coal face comedian <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I meant at all I, I mean, just picked myself up I am on that from, a, from Newcastle <laughs> but um yeah like I, I started when I was 18 doing comedy and I think if you as an 18 19 20 21 year old girl can survive a weekend comedy club, they're not going easier on you because you're young. They're not going easier on you because you're 20 years less experienced than the headliner. Mm. They are looking at you like, I have paid 17 quid to see an evening of comedy. There's four comics on, you're one of them, so make me laugh. Make me laugh. And I really put the work in early doors. Um, Always did the circuit. Like I used to spend my student loan on getting the gigs yes I, I had a day job so genuinely I worked at Boots a pub and a restaurant throughout uni I always had jobs through uni my jobs funded my studies they paid mm. my rent and my bills and my booze money and my student loan I actually used to help us with comedy to get the mega bus to get like the train to pay for like an easy hotel in Croydon with no window but I thought if I want this I have to put the work in and I need to be... I would watch the sort of headliner and I'd be like, right, I'm nowhere near as good as them, so how do I get better? Keep gigging. 
keep gigging. <laughs> and when you're on that, when you when you were, and I, we all are on that kind of, you know, the, you don't stop gigging. I don't think there ever becomes a point where you get better by not gigging. Exactly. Or is there? Or is there? I mean, there's. I do sometimes wonder whether you can, the circuit can feel like a bit of a trap because actually for some people you can, and I'm sure this has happened to me along the way, um, you end up re- going to the same rooms, kind of repeating, like almost like, um, it's not like working hard or working smart, but maybe it's a bit like that. Like maybe there is, yeah. in terms of not becoming a slave to the circuit. I definitely actually... hit that point as well, especially more... When I first started, I was like, a gig is a gig and a paid gig is a paid gig. But definitely for me, post-pandemic, um, where I'm prioritising earning money a lot more mm-hmm. and being like, you know what, like, it is stupid of me at the stage I'm at to go and do a gig where I'm going to profit £15 by the time I've mm-hmm. paid for travel. It's going to take up 12 hours of my day by the time I've got a train there, gone there, gone back. And I've... It, it pains us inside as somebody who, for the first seven years of our career or whatever, was like, yes, 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 I'll do whatever. I don't care if I only profit a 10 or at least I'm profiting. Now I'm like, oh no, I do have to be a bit savvier because it's more expensive to be alive. And is it really worth all my energy as well as my money at this stage of my career to go do a gig that I'm not either professionally benefiting from or financially benefiting from and I've never really been one to say no to things and even I said no to a gig the other day and the lady in the roller room was like what are you doing you're saying no to a gig and I was like yes but someone else will benefit from that stage time more than me who's going to spend 12 hours of a day to come away with 30 quid 40 yeah. quid it's like no is, well is there is there also a parallel to that I totally agree with you but is there also a parallel whereby um, even if the gigs were nearby and well paid, yeah. simply gigging and gigging and gigging, like that's absolutely what you've got to do early days. Mm-hmm. But is there is there a kind of an artistic benefit to taking a break, to having a rest from it, which I which sometimes people miss out so. on if they have that, that hardcore slog work ethic? And I think it is like that gig culture of like, oh no, but if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And this is a very... Yeah fast-moving industry and you close your eyes for a second and someone's ahead of you but I found so I hadn't stopped I would say from I went full I started in 2012 gigged solidly you know until 2017 was like really gigging well 2012 to 2016 I was juggling gigging comedy um a job in university Mm. I moved to London summer of 2016 was relentless with gigging that year. Like, oh my God, I gigged so much. Um, went full-time in 2017. And then obviously the pandemic hit in 2020. So I don't think I really took the foot off the pedal in those eight years. And I think, I'm not saying I'm happy about the pandemic. I do say this in my show. I very much wish we hadn't had to have a pandemic, but it forced me to have a break. Mm-hmm. And I do think that did me some good because um, I went back to work, back to work in a day job. Um, I left London, like a lot of things changed for us. But weirdly, I suddenly felt more, well, one, I was more inspired because I had had so much stuff happening in my actual life that I didn't have the time to gig because obviously I was working in a shop, couldn't gig really because it was illegal. But I had all this stuff happening that I could just write about. And I was like, oh, I'm actually experiencing life again. Weirdly, it's taken me, like lifting me foot off the comedy pedal to actually get to live not quite normally again so I felt so inspired but then also going back to day jobs for two years after 
three years of being full time, I was so hungry for it. So yeah. hungry. And I think obviously I, I had that hunger when I was a full time comedian, but I do also think you sit back a little bit and go, oh my God, all I ever wanted was to be a full time comedian. And look, I've done it. When I lost that or oh, the fire in my belly, I don't think I would have written the show. Well, not even content wise, but I think I put so much effort into that show because I thought, not that I thought I would get nominated, but I thought this show has to do well and be well received by an audience and hopefully by the industry, or I cannot be a comedian anymore. And I mm. want this. I really, really want this. And I had, last time I had that much fire in my belly was 2017 when I was writing my debut show. I took the risk to go full time. I didn't know if it was going to pay off. And I was just so hungry for it. And I thought, I'm like, it has to work. It absolutely has to, because if it doesn't, that's the life you're going to live. Like you're going to be working in a restaurant, watching all your mates, like smash it, getting all the telly jobs. And you're going to think, if I just really pushed, could I have done it? Could I have done it? And then, yeah, having that, like, so that's why I never took my foot off the pedal. And then having that enforced break arguably made us want it more because I remembered what it was like to not be a comedian at all. And I thought, no, this is what I want. Good for you. That's a really that's a really inspiring thing to hear. I suppose, like that, the the, the energy brought and the hunger and the kind of um, not. It's, I mean, I don't mean jealousy, but the kind of seeing like seeing other people continue to work because yeah. presumably when you took the decision to go and work, were you working in a supermarket? Over yeah, the, the I went to the supermarket and there. So I worked there for just over a year. Did everything. I was on the phones, taking all the orders from the nanas. I loved that. I loved chatting to people. <laughs> um, I was in the fridges. Did not like that. No, not a fan of being cold. So I was like, this is too much. Cafe. was in the cafe with my mum, smashing out fry-ups. Uh, <laughs> when I was on the checkouts, I used to write um, ideas on the back. Of, I'd print out a blank till receipt. And oh, I would jot ideas for stand-up. So that... I, the, the thing about that is that doesn't happen, I don't think, to anyone outside of the bounds of a pandemic happening, unless they're, yeah. I don't know, laid up in hospital or something. But even exactly. then, they don't need to get a different job. So what it reminds me of, and this probably isn't the first time you've heard her name in reference to your career, but for a different reason in this case, yeah. it reminds me of Sarah Millican talking about getting to work two hours early so yeah. she could write jokes all morning. So to be in the position whereby you have time because you're doing a job which doesn't necessarily take all of your attention and all of your imagination to do. Yeah. But you're not doing it sort of thinking, maybe one day I'll be a comedian. You're already a functioning professional comedian who is now forced into that situation. That must be... It's the sort of thing that had the pandemic not happened, you'd probably hear about like one artistic weirdo comedian saying, Absolutely. I'm going to work on a building site, man, just to write the a thing. new show. Like, I was definitely heading towards burnout at 2020 anyway. I was really like just constantly working and constantly gigging just in the hope of getting like that door opened or getting a step ahead. And I just, especially living in London, the financial pressures, I thought I just can't take my foot off the pedal. So even if I'd said I'm going to have a month not gigging, I would have just sat in the flat or I would have like gone for walks, but actually sort of being forced out of my like comfort zone Mm. and for basically after losing my job sort of thing, it really put things into perspective for me. Because even before the pandemic, I'd been starting to think, well, is this what you want? Do you want to be a comedian? You've never got any time on the weekends. Like it's really hard to maintain friendships. Like you don't get to give your partner all the time that they, is this really what you want? And then I lost it all. And I thought that I want nothing more. 
I want nothing more than to be a comedian. And that's why I was like, because I know a few people are like, well, why did you go back to work? And it's like, well, the way I saw it was, I think a lot of people don't realise this, it's like being a comedian costs money. It's not like you're just jumping on the bus to work. It's like, right, well, I don't drive, so I've got to get a train. And if there's not a last train back, I've got to get a hotel. And then I'm learning to drive at the minute. I need money for that. And then I'll need money for fuel and this and that. And I thought, if I just sit not working for however long, when comedy does come back, how am I going to afford to get a gigs? How am I going to afford, say, if like a last minute audition comes up in London? How am I going to afford the train? How am I going to afford Edinburgh if I haven't been working to support myself for like the last couple of years? So that's why I went back to the jobs because I thought if and when comedy does come back, I need to be able to support myself. I need mm-hmm. to be able to to do it, basically. So this is Lauren. Apologies once again for the sound quality of the echoey room in which I'm recording this blurb. Most unbecoming. Do apologise. Uh, remember, extras from Lauren at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you care to join up. And there's also extras there from all of the shows uh, which have extra content, which is hundreds and hundreds of hours now, um, as well as ad-free episodes, if you remember. Plus, there's a sort of workspace thing that we occasionally check in on and I mostly use to go, hey, gang, what should I do about this? And then people variously say helpful things to me. Now, I mentioned a secret project earlier on and I'm going to launch in fact by the time you're hearing this I may already have recorded and launched a little uh, a little kind of pre-episode ad at the beginning a little 20 seconds asking for your help Um, if I haven't done that then let's assume I didn't get around to it but uh, maybe at some point soon you'll hear that so please apply yourself to that what a pointless thing to bother saying Um, you can catch up with this podcast on Twitter at ComComPod you can follow me on Instagram at Stuart Goldsmith Comedy and you can find out all about Lauren Patterson at lauren-patterson.com as well as following her I believe on Twitter at Lauren Patterson and on Instagram at Lauren underscore Patterson. I think I've got all those right. Check the show notes and thank you to those of you in the ComCom Facebook group who took the time to answer my question wondering whether or not you read the show notes because I do spend a lot of time over them and it turns out almost no one reads them. But a couple of you were kind enough to point out that that may be because I'm speaking to the ComCom Facebook group who are a self-selecting group of mega nerds. If you'd like to join them, you can find the podcast on Facebook uh, by searching for it on Facebook, I guess. Um, and if you would like to get in touch with me, it's Stuart at comedianscomedian.com and you can use that email to ask me anything you like or, I mean, hey, remember, do you remember the old system? The system is you write PS, I'm a cool guy at the end, uh, particularly if you send me a long message, which I read every single thing I get sent, um, but I can't always reply in a sort of equal amount of um, uh, verbosity uh, that people contact me with. Uh, so if you put PS, I'm a cool guy, that's like a sort of tacit permission. That's an in, insider kind of in, in-gang uh, permission uh, for me to not feel bad about answering you with a sort of two-line reply. So you can use Stuart at comedianscomedian.com to get in touch with me and tell me whether you read the show notes. Because if more of you say that you don't, then uh, I'm really going to start dashing through them. But check these ones at least for details of uh, Lauren's tour show and her dates at Soho Theatre, I think the 7th to the 10th of December. That's sort of all of this stuff. Let's get back to this. It's Lauren. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Something that um, something I've seen, I've read some reviews of your of uh, It Is What It Is, of your Edinburgh show, and a couple of them referred to a bit in the show that I didn't recognise. I don't know if it existed in the preview that ah. you sent me about the the kind of the class structures in place within yes. comedy. Within Funnily which... enough, that's definitely evolved more during the fringe. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me about that. I thought that may be the case. Yeah. But, um, so that was to do with how like a lot of comics didn't talk about having got other jobs or yeah. like over the pandemic or they didn't either they were ashamed of it or they just didn't do it because they didn't have to do it yeah so this bit sort of definitely evolved more because I think during the previews I found it hard to word it without it sounding like I was slagging people off because that's not what I was doing and I'm sure any comedian who you ask about when they talk about class there's always this worry that you are going to be accused of being bitter of jealous of slagging off other people we're none of those things we're just trying to point out the differences that exist and it mm-hmm. the fact that you as a working class person dare to talk about it you're instantly called bitter and jealous is why more people don't talk about it it's why I didn't talk about it for ages but yeah. when I was at the fringe and just with those comedy savvy crowds I felt like it really came out the way I wanted to which was the reason I'm so open about having a day job is because I feel like there is this not just for comedy I bet this is true with like actors and musicians the arts in general there's this weird sense of shame that if you have a day job, you're not a proper comic, that other comedians yeah. won't take you as seriously because a hobbyist, you might have, have you heard that term? Sure, 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 Oh, they're yeah. a hobbyist. It's like, they're not a ho- hobbyist. Like, fair enough, there are some people who do stand up as a hobby, but just because you have a day job to support your stand up doesn't mean you're a hobbyist, doesn't mean yeah. it's a hobby. And I feel like that's why a lot of comedians, artists, keep their day job a secret fair enough some people don't want to talk about their day job on stage that is fine but I mean off stage with other comics in the green rooms I think the reason a lot of people are maybe a bit secretive about having a day job is there is this weird sense of shame and that's why I wanted to be so open especially as somebody who like you say it wasn't like I was trying to be a comedian and still had a day job Mm -hmm. I'd earned that I'd been full-time and then I'd taken that side step to going back to a day job and I thought I'm not having anyone make me feel like I'm a failure for doing this or that because I read a comment in on a on a Guardian article I probably shouldn't say that because it'll make people go look for it but it was <laughs> I contributed to this article in the lockdown about like comedians going back to work and stuff and I read one of the comments and it basically I think it was directed at me it said something like well she should have tried harder she should have worked harder and I thought mm. how dare you how absolutely dare you say something like that? Like that just reinforces this idea that if you need a day job, you're not working hard enough. And that is not true at all. And I sort of talked about it in the show and said a lot of the time, it's it's about the hand of cards you've been dealt. And nowhere in my pile of cards was my daddy's going to buy me a house or my mummy's going to pay my London rent. Like if you get dealt that card, 
yeah, you're going to be able to leave your day job a lot quicker. And that doesn't mean you're, you've worked harder. It doesn't mean you're more talented. It just means you've been handed a lucky, a lucky pass, walk three steps ahead. You can quit your day job because someone else is taking some of the financial burden. But for a lot of people, we don't have that. So that's why I was like, I'm going to be so open about going back. I went back to work for two years. Like I've only just left my last day job in like April, May. So it wasn't even that long before the fringe. And I thought I'm just going to be so open about going back to work and about being a respected comedian who also has a day job because it doesn't mean I'm not a proper comic I gave an example in the show a couple of times I didn't do this every day but when I was a student I was in my master's year um, and I was working in a burger restaurant and I'd done two support for Catherine Ryan the night before and the next day I'm at work and this table off staring at us like really and only like have I got like ketchup on my face or something like that classic what what from the kitchen is on my face somewhere then I went to this table and they went Ewe saw your sister last night I went my sister they went yeah your sister supported Catherine right she was so funny I went that wasn't my sister that was me and they went no no it was your sister I went no 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 Lauren Patterson they went yeah yeah that was her I went that's me and they went no but she was a comedian I went yeah, 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 I'm, I'm a comedian. I just, I work here, like, in the day to support myself. And I don't think she meant this nasty, but this is, again, what I mean about what helps create this sense of shame was, oh, we thought you were a proper comic. And I was yeah, like, but yeah. I am. I am a proper comic. I'm a proper comic who can't afford to get to those gigs unless I'm earning £7 an hour here. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just, I really wanted to be so open about it because I had a couple of comics in the pandemic be like, hey, thank you for being honest about going back to work, like, because it made me feel less bad about going back to work or it made me feel less bad about having a day job. And I was like, well, exactly, like... It's extraordinary, isn't it? And I, I'm sure the roots of it are in... Um the fact of the progression that certainly exists in the early part of a comedy career where it's such a goal to become full-time and you see people who are full-time and you envy them and you go, I want to be like that as well. And then you make it full-time. You're like, that's it. And so it does, you can sort of see how it would feel like, um, like a step backwards or, or whether it becomes, um, uh, part of a, you know, it's like a badge of honor. I'm in the full-time club now because I'm good enough. And often there is a relationship between how, I want to say how good you are in inverted commas, how effective you are at certain elements of your job. We know people who are funnier than others, perhaps, but are terrible at admin and not easy to get on with or whatever, you know, and there are are people who manage to leverage what they've got in different ways. But as you totally correctly point out, that even that scale, like all scales in a capitalist society, is based in this erroneous idea that there's a meritocracy. That everyone will be, you know... If I'd stayed in Newcastle... I would have probably been able to go full-time quicker because my outgoings were less. So mm. my rent in Newcastle at the time was about £250 a month. And then say my bills, under £400 were my outgoings. So if you think, that's really one weekend comedy club. Yeah. And I was, I, was doing, I was doing every weekend, like the club weekends, and then I was picking up gigs through the week. But because I'd moved to London, because there was this whole idea of you have to be in London or the industry won't look at you, suddenly I found my rent being over £500 and then my bills on top of that and then my tube on top of that. So suddenly my outgoings were double, which means you have to work to support yourself. Like, because mm-hmm. you're like, well, yeah, I'm doing paid gigs, but, you know, I, I need, I need, I need it topping up, basically. I need, like, a bit extra coming in. So, yeah, I'll do 12 hours a week in a restaurant, 20 hours a week in a restaurant, whatever, to be able to... So the money I was, again, earning in the restaurant, I was putting most of that towards living costs so that my comedy gigs would 
support the comedy and then I was making up the shortfall, you know, dipping into whichever pot. But yeah, like that's that's kind of what stresses out as well because obviously to be full-time is just such this goal but there's so many other factors like you might be an incredible comic but say if your rent especially in bloody london is like 700 quid Mm. and then you've got all your other outgoings it's like yeah it's probably going to take you a bit longer to be able to make that jump because of your financial commitment unless you've got someone helping you out which helps (laughs) did it work did moving to London work? Is that part of what put you on the map? Did, did Can you be, did, did be it... totally honest? Yo, please, please do. Absolutely not. I I think moving to London benefits a lot of people, and I can I can you know we can see it. We see the examples of it working. I don't think it worked for me at all. So I moved in twenty seventeen. Well, twenty sixteen went full time in twenty seventeen got the nomination in the August and I was thrilled I remember saying like you know am I gonna have to go back to my day job in September or do I just risk it and I thought no I'm gonna risk it I got a lot of international opportunities off the back of that fringe show so for most of the rest of 27 and 18 I did the Aussie festivals I did New Zealand I did Montreal I went to India with Soho Theatre I'd never been further than Spain at that <laughs> point in my life and suddenly because of comedy all these doors opened and then I did Live at the Comedy Store and Roast Battle. I did do those quite close together. Um, well, no, I did Live at the Comedy Store in about the March. I did a new Fringe show in the August and we filmed Roast Battle in the October. I then didn't get any TV until 2020 in the pandemic. I did that um, stand-up for BBC thing on BBC mm-hmm. Two. Mm-hmm. So really, obviously... I know this is one of those things that sounds like some comedians would snap your arm off a one bit of telly. So I'm very grateful and lucky for the things I've done. But when I consider how much I gave up and how much I sacrificed to move to London to essentially only get two bits of telly in four years, I was like, was that for me really worth moving to London? I don't think so. Like for all the money I spent and things like that. But did it make me a better comic? Yes. It did because I was so desperate for anybody to notice us, for anybody to give us a shot. Uh, Even when I moved down, I did the open mic gigs. I was too too good to be doing the open mic gigs, sorry, brag. But I thought I want stage time and I knew how much I'd sacrificed to move to London. It cost us me relationship. Um, Obviously, I was spending everything I had to be there. It cost us a lot of me mental health because I wasn't happy. I was miserable. I was lonely. I thought if I've given all that up, this has to be worth it and I will do any gig I can to get better so I would do like unpaid gigs and stuff and it definitely did make us a better comic so for that I'm grateful did make us a better comedian but when I look at what you know if you move to London and within like six months you're on every tv show or a year definitely worth it definitely worth it but to me what did I move for to try and get those telly opportunities and to get maybe some writing opportunities got no writing opportunities and only did I say only. Again, that sounds like, oh, my diamond shoes are too tight. But sure, you know what sure. I mean. like. Yeah. And I sometimes I do think, okay, so if I'd moved back to Newcastle after Lady Muck in 2017, I would have still got the international opportunities, probably still would have got those two bits of telly. And would would I have just been able to have the life I wanted quicker by making that decision to move? Because I've, mm. I've committed and moved back to the north now. I've 
dug my heels in. I'm like, something needs to change in this industry. And the more people I think who do go, no, I'm not coming to London, but if you want me to come down for this, yeah, of course I'll get a train. It's not hard. So I thought if I want to see that change in the industry, I have to, to lead by it and be like, no, I don't want to live in London. So I'm going to chance it and stay here. <laughs> so what's the relationship then between this self-belief that you have and the ambition that you have and the work ethic and that I'm going to turn up, I'm going to make this work, I have to be seen, I have to be in the conversation. What's the relationship between that and your anxiety? Oh God, it's like a constant battle in my head. Like, is, it, is it that you are, that you work so hard because you're anxious? I think so, yeah. Because okay. I think at the very core of it, if I sort of, I imagine myself as one of them lint balls no, them lint chocolate balls. No, how the inside oh, yes, or like. <laughs> I thought you meant lint as in like stuff a hoover, on your clothes. Yeah. Lint with a D the in little, it. Yeah, those the little, little lint chocolate oh, ones. Um, <laughs> so the inside of them's obviously all like soft and lovely, isn't it? And I think if you looked at me with like one of these mad cameras inside, I'm I'm quite soft. I'm very anxious. I don't believe in myself. I want to a bit like what I talk about in the show. I worry too much about pleasing other people. What other people think of is, I'm like racked with like self-doubt I'm like oh I'm not good enough I think it's a little bit of working class imposter syndrome where I'm like oh well well why would someone like me you know oh the fancy London showbiz industry no that's not for people like me like I taught like this and I didn't go to private school and all that and I think all this is at the very core of it so almost to try and combat that I've built this like shell outside that's like but if you work really hard and if you turn up and if you show up and if you improve Shirley, because what's that Steve Martin quote? Like, get so good they can't ignore you. Yeah. Like, yeah. I at my very core, I know I'm a good comic. I'm just one who's racked with self doubt and doesn't really believe in herself. So that's why I think I've almost had, like you say, build this really ambitious work ethic around it in the hope that surely at some point that will pay off. I'll get that recognition. People will stop ignoring us, and maybe some of those doubts will get quietened a little bit to, to me the interesting thing about that is which one of those things is at the center like which one is on the outside and which one's on the inside because it, obviously it's layered but yeah. that's really interesting that you like normally people would go i've got a all right I, I, I suppose my assumption would be like i've got a core that i basically deep down don't think i'm worth anything yeah. so i have to prove it but yeah. the, you've almost said the inverse of that it's like Deep down, I know I'm a good comic. Yeah. So then that that core is surrounded by wobbling. So that core is then surrounded by having to work hard. It's just a very... (laughs) That's really... That's a very interesting picture you paint of it. Where does the deep down... Like, for me, for my anxiety... Yeah. One of the things that will knock me off my feet is if a gig's going badly, a tiny part of me will go, see, you knew you weren't very good. And that makes me think, oh, maybe my deep down, maybe my foundational kind of... Uh, anxiety is oh maybe I'm just not very good maybe I just don't fit and that feels like the deepest one well I had that at the so I did my first tour show last weekend at the Lowry and I think I had a 96 in out of 150 so you know a really nice full room and again for someone like me who I don't have like a smash hit podcast I'm not all Mm. over telly so I know that I'm not like you know and a very easy sell for tickets like the people who come to see me are the people who've seen me graft the circuit over the years mm-hmm. and like oh I remember seeing her at this gig this gig people who've seen us in Edinburgh or like proper you know diehard comedy fans who know their shit and you know I'll be on their periphery somewhere so I was really pleased to have that many people in um and I was having a lovely show and then I would say about 
must have been past the half hour mark, maybe about 35 minutes in, I saw this woman walking out and I just assumed she was going to the toilet, but then I saw her husband or partner or whoever it was, it was definitely a man with that follow and I felt that little, I called out the little girl and say, go see your shit. You're so shit, these people have paid 12 quid a ticket and don't even want to sit through the other half hour of your show. Like, you are awful. And I said to my boyfriend after, I went, did you see that woman leave? He went, I did, yeah. I went, did everything okay? Was it like a, like, I don't know if you happened to hear at all why she was leaving. He went, no. And he could say I was bothered by it. He went, maybe she just felt sick or something. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know what? That's what I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to believe she left because she felt sick. That's it. Nothing to do with in as well. If, I, if she wasn't enjoying it, genuinely, fair play then, fair play, I still made 94 people laugh and that's not bad odds. So I think that's, I'm having to try and like rewire my brain and be like, why would you focus on the two people who for whatever reason left rather than the 94 who stayed and laughed and enjoyed it? And it's a bit of a battle, but again, it's, it's trying to like ignore the anxious voice and get down to that deep root of no, 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 but you know you are a good comic or you wouldn't have even been able to write an hour-long show. Like, mm-hmm. So the fact that you can and you've performed it, like, just I need to shut up that little crying voice and get to the, the sassy well, one underneath. This is it. I feel like um, trying to shut that voice up is probably not what a, a therapist would tell you to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is why I've never do, gone. <laughs> <laughs> what I need to do is take that voice and really cram it down there and ignore it. Tell me, tell me about that. You've not been to therapy. No. Because you seem like, uh, forgive me, like there, <laughs> may not, there may not be a polite way to say this. You seem like you'd really benefit from it. I definitely think I should have gone. But weirdly, back when I think I would have most benefited from it, which is when I was living in London, when I was really, really low, like uh, I felt like I didn't have any friends. I felt like I wasn't fitting into comedy. I was working so hard and just not seeing any benefits and I was like I just the way I described it was I was like I feel like I am hammering on the door and my knuckles are bleeding I was like there's only so long you can let your knuckles bleed before you just stop knocking on that fucking door and you accept no one's gonna answer so that would have been probably sort of like 2017 till maybe like late 2018 about like that like sort of chunk of time the reason I never went to any therapy I didn't have time I genuinely didn't have time I was like working a day job and then gigging in the evening. And then when I left the day job, um, that's when I had the like the fringe success with the newcomer norm. And I came back from there and I was so busy. I remember I did go on the waiting list for therapy and I was on this waiting list for months and I got the phone call to say I was at the top of the list the week before I was due to fly to Melbourne. Yeah. And so I couldn't go to the therapy because I went, oh, well, I'm going to be back in, like, I'm going to, I think I was going to Melbourne and then going to Sydney and going to New Zealand. So I was going to be gone for like, say I'd, I'd done Perth and Adelaide so I still had another like what six eight ten weeks of this trip left or whatever and I said oh I'm guessing I can just like move my appointment to that time and she was like no you'll have to go back to the bottom of the waiting list and I thought oh well I'm not doing that again I'm not doing that and like I, I definitely think I probably could have benefited from it but it just never really fit into my schedule which is probably very telling <laughs> in itself. <laughs> I went, I went on a bit of a journey during that, I have to say, because as soon as you said, I said, you know, maybe you'd benefit from therapy. I'm surprised you've not been. You said I haven't had the time. Yeah. And I had a real kind of check my privilege moment of going, oh, of course, you're working all these jobs. And, you know, yeah. I, I didn't go to therapy until I was a, a when I was a full time street performer. And really? full time is almost no hours. So yeah. I was in the privileged position of being able to go, 
I'm going to take some money out of my hat and spend it on a therapist right away yeah. and try and get it and kind of begin that <laughs> as it turned out lifelong journey. And then it turned out what you meant, although although all of that is is valid and that is a yeah. privileged position to be able to afford therapy. And um, then I realised what you meant was I was busy flying to Australia to do my uh, comedy career. <laughs> yeah. So that is another entirely reasonable reason exactly. <laughs> you know, to be too busy for it. But yeah, like. I probably like I say I definitely should have had it at some point but I went from just being too busy with life yeah. to then the comedy was quite literally taken off on a plane to Australia sure. and I thought I'm not losing these opportunities and that's when I sort of had a brain flip moment in my head and this was around the time I was doing that podcast with Aaron I was like okay mm. so if you're not going to go to therapy you have to promise Lauren you're going to do some work on yourself yourself you're going to start to listen to yourself and your brain you're going to recognize when things are spiraling out of control rather than let things spiral out of control you're going to recognize that and you're going to stop it you're going to start putting yourself a little bit higher up the list of priorities and I'd say that's what I've done since about 2018 2019 is really when I worked at Morrison's I took a week off with stress at one point on the sick I could feel I was getting so like overwhelmed I felt a bit teary all the time and you just feel constantly on the edge of a breakdown which looking back I'd Broke up with my long-term partner. I'd moved back from London to Newcastle. I was battling... This is kind of what my show was about. I'd moved back, obviously, into my childhood home. So I felt like I'd lost all my independence because for the first time in my life, well, in, in my adult life, I was living back at home. So I felt like a burden. I felt like this. I felt like that. I was convincing everybody that I was, you know, fine because I'd gone back to work, held my head high, and everyone was like, oh, she's a grafter. Like, good on you, Lauren, this, that, and the other. But it got to the point where, which I think probably we all felt... Maybe sort of Christmas 2020, early 2021, when I just thought, when the fuck is this going to end? When does this... I feel like I'm trapped in this never-ending cycle of uncertainty and I've lost everything that made us who I was and I don't know how to get it back. And I thought, you know what? Take a week off work. Take a week off work. And I, I remember feeling awful getting this sick note and I just had a week off. And I thought, if I hadn't had that week off, I would have had a breakdown in about a month's time, definitely. And the second I took that week off, I thought... This is this is progress, Lauren, because you're recognising you're too stressed, you're not feeling yourself, and if you don't do something, it's going to be worse for you in a month's time. This this is really it's really interesting to me to hear that um, you were able to kind of talk yourself, you were able to give yourselves those kind of therapeutic interventions that a therapist might do. Yeah, is is part of that? Do you think through doing the podcast with Aaron and this talking is why- about? Yeah, I do so much work. So I've run, I hate running. I can't even run for a bus. But I ran the Great North Run last weekend for Calm. And I did it for the first ever time last year for Calm. And this is now why I have really committed to doing this money for Calm. Because without them even realising, they gave me that opportunity to co-host that podcast. And that then, by proxy, gave me all these tools to look after myself. And I can't tell them how grateful I just by giving me an opportunity like a work-based opportunity they actually improved the quality of my life so much because suddenly for the first time I was sitting having conversations with people who were telling me they felt the same as me I remember Darren Harriet talking to me about um how he really struggles to make eye contact and I went what and he was like yeah yeah, yeah. like even on stage like, I really struggle to make eye contact and I went I really and I'd never joined the dots in my head that that was an anxious thing I just thought I was bad at making eye contact and the more I spoke to people we did two series about like 40 episodes or whatever it just absolutely did wonders for us and 
made us realize I wasn't so alone and that my feelings were valid and normal gave us sort of just the tools to to like deal with myself a bit better and manage myself and manage my expectations and that's now why I'll run as many half marathons (laughs) as they want because they have honestly done me the work like completely inadvertently they were just given us an opportunity to co-host a podcast but without realizing it's absolutely genuinely changed my life genuinely and and you got paid to do it and it turns out podcasting is really good from that perspective as someone who's been having a lot of conversations about mental health over the last 10 years really helped sort me out and let's just this is a this is a tangent because uh uh i'm just interested in running because i saw on facebook that you you were doing this half marathon i'm doing my first 10k in about two weeks and i'm pretty excited about it because i'm someone that like i'm having you said oh i hate running where i'm coming from is i've historically always hated running and i'm sort of almost on the verge of having to accept that i quite like it it's just that there are years worth of absolutely hating it to try and climb over and i feel like i'm betraying my younger self if i accept that actually I, i seem to quite enjoy it and it's good for my brain that's good. I just get bored. I st- Do you still hate it? Did you hate every minute of the half? Well, the first four miles, for anyone who doesn't know, the Great North Run, it starts on the Central Motorway in Newcastle and you run to South Shields. Okay. You run to the coast. It's 13.1 miles and um, you run through like Gateshead, which is where I live now. So at sort of about mile three-ish, I was running past my house and I was running past Tesco and I was like, I'll be there later, see ya. <laughs> got like mile four and that's sort of you coming out of Gateshead I'd say by about mile five I was like why the fuck am I running to South Shields what <laughs> what I will never have any need in my life to, there is a metro from where I live to South Shields and it takes 20 minutes and then I'm having this like proper argument in my head and I was like why why would you even run to the beach what what need have you ever got to run to the beach I'm never running to the beach again in my life and I was having this whole bicker with myself the whole way around but obviously I was doing it for charity so I kept telling myself that as well as like you're doing it because people are paying you to do it you're helping people this is a really good thing um, mile 9, 10 and 11 were predominantly uphill. That, I saw Chris and Rosie Ramsey though in South Shields. Oh, yeah. They were waving yeah. people on. That made us feel nice. <laughs> and then I got to the top of this hill. So this is approaching mile 12 and I could see the sea. And that last mile was the most enjoyable mile because I thought you've done it. This is why yeah. you've done it. Like this yeah. sense of achievement. Um, and I did... The second I crossed the finish line, I was like, I will do it again next year. I know I will. Like... <laughs> Yeah, the like recognizing that you're a storyteller. I think that's quite interesting, particularly when you are coming at that not as like if someone sets out to be a storyteller, yeah. maybe the jokes aren't as good. But if you're coming at yeah. it from like dense gag rate and going, actually, I enjoy, you know, you know how to write a good joke. There's some love. You've got some lovely like not just jokes, not just kind of big payoffs, but you've got lovely little asides. I wrote one down. What was it? Hang on. Um uh, I don't think it was from this show, but it's um, get you a girl who can do both, uh, referring yeah, yeah. to your northern accent and your retail job. Like that's yeah. a, like that's such a lovely little kind of it's like a. I mean, it's a punchline, but it's kind of a turn of phrase driven punchline. Yeah. Um, I put that back in um, me show this week. Oh, yeah. I think I, um, I I tried it in a few different ways, and then in this year's show, I had the joke about etymology. Yeah. Um, but then also one day someone brought us one of the Greg's t-shirts, the Primark Greg's t-shirts. Okay. And I was like, this is the perfect storm of what it is to be me. Like the whole show was obviously kind of about 
stereotypes and being portrayed as a stereotype, but how also sometimes those stereotypes are fucking true sure. and like leaning into both of those. And after I did the joke about etymology, I was like, you know, if there is any industry in, yes, that was a working class girl doing a joke about etymology, you're very welcome. And then I said, but do I also have one of the Primark t-shirts with Greg's emblazoned across it? Yes, I do. Get you a girl who can do both. (laughs) (laughs) I can make smart jokes about etymology, but I still love a pasty. Like, that is absolutely fine. (laughs) Here's another thing that someone said in a review. Uh, While this is a very polished and slick hour of comedy, Lauren Patterson very much gives you the feeling that you're just sitting down for a chat with a pal. Which I think is what you're going for. Yeah, yeah. Like, and like, like what you were saying about the little asides and stuff as well. I do very much try and do that. So I never script my show. Okay. Like, never. Um, I I know the order, but I, I like to sort of leave it with a little bit of room to play. So. The, the material will always be the same, that, that core of the material. But every now and then I might chuck in an extra little... So like I said before, I didn't do it every night, but sometimes I would tell the story about the people, the person mistaken us for uh, Catherine Ryan's to her yeah. support, being like, oh, I thought you were a proper comic. I did that a couple of times, but not every night. Um, little asides and stuff, because I, I want it to come across like... Like, like a poly- Well, kind of what that review said. I want it to be a polished stand-up show, but that people feel they've got something slightly unique coming. Like, yes. it won't quite be the same every day. Maybe they'll get a slightly different aside. I want it to have that, like, chatty, friendly vibe mm. while being underneath that a very structured show, which is quite a oxymoron, but... <laughs> and what what sorts of things do you um, struggle with in your comedy? Like, we know we know your kind of your, your strong points, your skill set and all the rest of it. What are the things that you would like to be better at, either techniques or styles yes. or anything like that? Weirdly, the social media side. I'm very good at Twitter. I yep. think I've really... I've, I've nailed Twitter. I, I know my voice on there. I know how to craft like either a funny little joke or how to turn a little anecdote in, in, me, in me day about something quite witty. But I think the stand-up landscape is shifting a lot. And now it's all about reels and TikTok and like putting out content. And I am, because of the anxiety, really, really bad at that. Like I can't think of anything worse than having to put a minute clip of me doing stand-up as a reel or on TikTok. I've got a TikTok account, but I've generally never posted to it because I think especially as a woman in comedy, and there might be people who disagree with this, but I I do staunchly believe as a woman in comedy, you are automatically more likely to be abused on the internet Mm. than if I was a man posting a clip of comedy. Like, I think people are more likely to watch the clip of that man and be like, oh, it's a bloke doing stand-up. Let's watch it. Whereas I think if they see a clip of a woman, they're still across a lot of people that attitude of bet she's not going to be funny so they're automatically watching it thinking you're not going to be funny I've never like there's very few videos of me doing stand-up online because I don't post them and I don't have a lot of telly appearances it's not like there'd be a load out there anyway but my boyfriend once said he'd read some comments on either YouTube or wherever and he went it's almost like these people have hate watched it and I went I think there is that corner of the internet who do they'll see like a video of a woman doing anything let alone bloody stand up where she's got opinions and they'll just latch onto it and I think as someone who's very anxious and who does get really like sometimes a bit too fixated on worrying what other people think and I think that is inevitably going to hold me back in my career if I can't move with the times and start adapting to this whole TikTok like Instagram culture like and that is what I... And I know it might not be necessarily if you were thinking more technique-wise, but I do think that could see me getting left behind. 
I've got one audience question, which we'll do quick fire. Lovely. You can just answer this quickly. This is from Lucas. Given that you worked with your mum over the lockdowns, will she now start a stand-up career and join you on stage? Oh, I mean, I'd like to think she wouldn't join me on stage because she'd probably outshine us. She's one of these people who's very, like, doesn't realise how funny she is. I would suggest to her to stick to the supermarket career, not out of any meanness, but because from experience it's a steady income (laughs) but what i will say is if any production company want to give me and my mom a travel show i'll take it we'll go to all the world supermarkets we'll try all the cheeses incredible (laughs) (laughs) and very finally are you happy right now i am yes i truly think i am because i am where i want to be not necessarily in my career but in my personal life I'm back in the northeast which I always thought was something I had to get away from I was like oh you know like nothing ever happens around here and now I very much realized you make the things you want to happen and there's nothing to say that I can't be in a city that I love and also doing the thing I love I just have to maybe work a little bit harder for those opportunities or find way to make those opportunities up here I've got my dog I love my dog so much um I've got a lovely boyfriend who is the most supportive person in the world. Like, genuinely, I could not have asked. Because like, he's the kind of person, like, he'll share, like, my sort of, like, ticket links and he'll post about how proud he is during Edinburgh. And I've never had that before, of, like, having a partner who fully understands this career and that this isn't just a hobby. This isn't like, oh, my girlfriend does stand up for a laugh. He's like, this is my girlfriend's career and she's fucking great at it. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I am. And again, this is kind of what I talk about in the show. I had none of these things two years ago. I was really miserable in London. I felt like I didn't have any friends. I felt like, you know, my relationship that I was in then clearly didn't work out. But now I'm like, you know what? You're where you want to be. You're in Newcastle. You've got a dog. You've got a boyfriend. You've got all the things in life that could make you happy. So now anything that happens in stand-up is just a bonus because really what matters at the end of the day is that your life is in order. And for the first time in 28 years... My my life is in order, and I just see anything that happens career-wise now is like the little uh, the toffee sauce that you get on top of a brownie. I've got the brownie, and you know what? If I get some toffee sauce, banging. If not, I've still got a brownie. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Lauren. So that was Lauren Patterson. Thank you so much to Lauren for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Nathan Wood uh, for editing, uploading and otherwise producing the show. Thank you to our logger Moz. Rob Smout did the music. Asher Trelevin did the title many years ago. And uh, Brett Goldstein remains mine and everyone's hero. Uh, I will post Amber at you extremely briefly after the noise of the horse. But uh, other than that, uh, let's bid you adieu next week. Who have we got? Oh, I think next week it's Grace Petrie. Mwah! Absolutely sensational episode. Look forward to that, and I will speak to you soon. Bye forever. <laughs> Hello. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've promised you a postamble now, but I almost certainly shouldn't do one. The sound quality here, I'm sure, is absolutely terrible. I'm still recording. Oh, my God, look at this. I'm doing this on my phone. This is so unprofessional. And by so unprofessional, I mean this is Comedians, Comedian Podcast, Blurbs, Circa, 
2015, <laughs> where for a period of about three years, I did all of them on my phone. I'm so sorry. I hope this is picking up okay. I haven't even prepped anything to talk to you about. The exciting secret project is, is exciting, but I really didn't intend to publicly commit to it. And I accidentally did, I mean, genuinely accidentally. And then I thought, oh, Christ, that's the secret project. Um, and the more I talk about it now, the worse it's going to get. So forget I said anything. Um, but it is quite fun to think there might be a secret project in the works, right? Shut up, shut up, doesn't matter. Um, the good news, the, some exciting news, is that I got uh, referred for an ADHD proper consultancy thing via the right to choose system. So if you uh, have been told by your NHS person or your GP that um, the waiting list is five years, as I, would, as I was, then thank you to a couple of different people, including but not limited to Reuben and Sarah, uh, who variously got in touch with me and told me about the right to choose, hereafter referred to as RTC, uh, system, which you can Google yourself. I'm not going to make any pronouncements about what it is because I barely understand, but I hope I'm now on a pathway to get assessed uh, within six months. And I cannot wait. I cannot wait for that assessment to happen, for them almost certainly to say, no, you're just a scatty twat. And for me to get back on the podcast and talk to you all in, in an extremely embarrassing climb down uh, as I try and sort of get used to the idea that uh, I'm just a bit all over the place and there's no cure <laughs> and, and all of those elements of my personality that I find troubling are simply troubling elements of my personality. So uh, we can all look forward to that. Oh, and that's another thing. I've been uh, looking at the archive, which uh, ComCom fan, sometime logger, general pod mother and uh, brilliant podcast producer and also digital asset management person, Emily Crosby, um, kindly assembled for me, um, and it's it's just enormous. There's so much stuff. Every time I look at the back, it's probably why I never got around to it in the first place because it's just a terrifying volume of stuff. And trying to skate through it and kind of in my mind, it's a sort of gyroscopic chair with 20 screens around me, and I can just access the stuff. But it honestly makes me feel like being, you know, Batman or Barbara Gordon or anyone on the Mission Impossible team. Just the sheer, or what's his name, Ben Wishaw is Q in the in the uh, in your bonds. Just the sheer volume of stuff. How can any of it get anywhere? You never co- you never see. <laughs> Here's a bit of observational something. You never see uh, people in thriller movies. Uh, I can't be bothered to finish this thought. <laughs> hey, um, that'll do. There's a bit of sticky tape on the wall there. Um, as I said, probably all just in my head. So that will do. I'm sorry. This is rambling. I've had a coffee like four or five minutes ago and it's uh, I've learned my lesson and I won't do this again but this is all the time I've got I'm sorry for the lateness I hope one day I'm able to explain to you why it was late uh, to your satisfaction and then of course as I say that I remember that uh, you don't I don't know it's not that you don't deserve my explanation it's that I don't have to give you one for I'm just this guy on a podcast wandering around and um yeah Christ, we can't do that, Nathan, can we? We're going to have to. I've got no more time. Bye. (laughs)